Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who always has to build his own theater. It's step one, all right? Well, step one is remove animals, I believe. (laughs) Okay, okay. Step one, remove animals. All I'm saying is, if you want to put on a play, if you want to put on a play, first you (laughs) have to create the atom. In, in some undetermined <laughs> colonial time period that I don't know exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Spanish right. ruled Peru for a pretty long time, right? So, I mean, that's super clear, right? I assume it's the Spanish. I don't know a lot about Peru history. Could be the Portuguese? It is, the Spanish. It is, it is not the Portuguese. Okay. It's the Spanish. Peruvian at history least, is not my strong here. suit. Despite the fact that I spent... A good portion of this film thinking, wait, when was France in charge of Peru? Me too. <laughs> Actually, I spent the first part of the film thinking, when was France not part of Europe? <laughs> like, it was all very confusing at the beginning. Like, I don't, maybe I just wasn't paying attention for the very first, like, minute of the film. Like, when I'm often, like, fetching yeah. water and stuff while I'm, like, getting started. You know, when the Janus thing rolls up and... Like, well, I got time yeah. to go run a glass of water, grab a glass of water or something. Um, because I was like, where are we right now? People are making references. Eventually, they started making references to the New World. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, we're somewhere in South America. Uh, but prior to that, I'm just like, why do they keep talking about ships? And these people are Italian, but, like, these people are all speaking English. There's some hints towards being Spanish. I'm so confused. So I was like, oh, people are visiting from Italy to Spain but and came by boat? I don't know. But everybody's <laughs> French? I don't know. And speaking it's a English. little more complicated than that. Actually, it's a, it's a fascinating thing uh, about the progeny of this film is its sort of internationality. You know, it takes place in Peru. It's about Spanish aristocrats and Italian actors, and <clears throat> it's... Uh, Soundtracked completely with Vivaldi music, but it's a uh, Italian production uh, from a French director, all done in English. Yeah, no, it's a, it's uh, it is the definition of multicultural. Yeah, well, well, I mean, <laughs> it is the, multicultural. The white European definition. Oh of well, I mean, yeah, no, no exactly <laughs> the definition of multicultural, Adam. <laughs> yes, yes. Unfortunately, the definition of multicultural. All, all people who are not white are in the background and not important. Yeah. Welcome to, even now, the current operating definition of multicultural. So this week we are talking about The Golden Coach. It's a 1952 film by Jean Renoir. It's kicking off a box set for us of Renoir films. Uh, not necessarily a trilogy as far as uh, Renoir it seems, was concerned. Right, it seems to be a trilogy of um, like as far as Criterion's concerned, right? Yeah, it's one of those things. Okay, there's two ways that a trilogy gets defined for us, at least with the Criterion Collection. One is a uh, a director actively making 
a trilogy and saying this is the trilogy and, and I'm going to make these three films together. Uh, and that was true of the BRD trilogy, really. Um, now, to be fair, though, wasn't that more of a... I feel like that that was that was more like that there's was a retroactive, third way. There's really. a third way you're gonna because you got yeah. you've got. I'm gonna make a trilogy. You've got yeah. criterions like these seem like they might be connected. Yeah, critics critics say these seem like they may be connected. And then there's the third one where the director's like, "Shit, I accidentally made a trilogy." <laughs> Better start claiming it's a trilogy. Yeah, oh shit! Really I gotta get on board on this. Um, uh, that's really what happened with BRD. But things like. Uh, um, well, I mean, there's the... Bergman's God trilogy, I think, was more of a... Uh, I think that was on... a critic's thing. Well, I I'm, I think it might be a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, because he Maybe. set out to deal with one of his demons, as Bergman is wont to do. Yeah. And, like, deal with this whole God yeah. thing. And it happened that he made three movies. And it took, it took three movies. If it had taken four, it would have been a quadrology. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just—that's uh, how he is, though. I mean, until that demon was excised, it was just going to every movie's going to be about this. These are three films made back to back in the fifties. This one in nineteen fifty-three, the French Can Can in fifty-five. We'll talk about next week, and then Elena and her men will finish us off from nineteen fifty-six. Uh, they are packaged as the from the Criterion Collection as stage and spectacle. Three films by Jean Renoir. They're all three films about uh, stage, about performance, okay. about okay. Uh, art. So do you think, um, that, which column do you think this fits into? I really you know feel answer? like, from from everything I've read, uh, this one actually is, is an interesting mix of columns in that Renoir made these three movies, uh, and then people started saying, oh, there's some clear, some clear... Uh, Overlay and some clear thread threads through these. At which point he was happy to entertain the idea of them being trilogies and would do interviews where they are talked about as trilogies and not push back against that idea. But I don't know that he he doesn't seem to have set out to make three films. Well, see, these were just but the like three with Renoir, I'm actually surprised. It seems surprising to me that he didn't be like, "Oh yeah, I did that on purpose." Well, another interesting thing about it is that. At least with these first two, The Golden Coach and uh, French Can Can, he took over the projects from other people. Oh, interesting. Um, so he can't even really take full credit for that. Yeah. Uh, I thought I read in the Wikipedia for French Can Can that he wrote and directed it. He wrote and directed French Can Can, but he took over the idea. Um, it was based on an idea by someone else oh, okay. who had it. Hadn't fleshed out, just like a story treatment that he sold. Okay. Um, yeah, that's the other thing. It's the Criterion essay that describes them as being taken over from other people, but it's a little sketchy on what even that guy means by it, right? Um, it wasn't like these were already in production by other folks. It was right. Just I mean, like if, if it's board. like if it's like oh, like he got the idea. Like the idea, at least of when we. I'm jumping ahead here. French Can Can is about as generic a theater based <laughs> plot device as you can cook up. Perhaps, perhaps true enough. Um, with this one, it it seems like he's pretty on board. Vivaldi actually uh, credits. Uh, I'm sorry, Renoir credits Vivaldi as his principal collaborator on this movie. Um, despite Vivaldi obviously being dead. Yeah, see, that's what I was like. Um, I was like, Adam, what are you about to say? 
Yeah. Because I'm going to go out uh, and say Vivaldi never heard of Renoir yeah. because that's impossible. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Vivaldi's yeah, secretly he... a time traveler. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe that's... I assume Man. that anybody famous is a time lord, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. All famous people are actually the same person. Yeah, okay, that's weird. fine, that's fine. I, I can deal with that. I was going to go with multiple Time Lords, just so we could at least hit the male-female no. thing, but I always for, no. I forget when I'm trying to construct these arrangements that Time Lords change appearance, so yeah, fine. They're all the same Time Guy. Same, same yeah. uh, Time Lord. Just infinitely alive, constantly jumping back and forth. Yeah, you've just described Doctor Who, so yes. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Um, I, I, like the, I like the notion that if you, if you watch, if Doctor Who goes on long enough... Every time Doctor Who meets somebody he's really like into and thinks is really cool, two like twenty years later we get to see an episode of it actually being him. Like he meets Charles Dickens, <laughs> and he's like all giddy about it, and it turns out Charles Dickens is him. Yes. It's all a big fucking like circle. Even his I, I like to believe even his uh even his companions are actually him. <laughs> if this like loops far enough, there's literally no other people in the universe other than the Doctor. Yes. And so therefore, Vivaldi and Renoir, same dude. Hooray. Podcast <laughs> finished. <laughs> anyway, Renoir sat down with Vivaldi Records when he was working on the script, and, and as such, Vivaldi was the only like, that's choice. A, that's a pretty... Yeah, but then like to be like, he's my key collaborator with Vivaldi. That's a yes. pretty... That's a pretty Renoir thing to say, huh? It really is. I was going to say, like, a pretty arrogant, kind of asshole thing to say. I was like, no, it's a pretty (laughs) Renoir thing to say. It's a Renoir thing. He says, I wrote the script while listening to records of his music, and his wit and sense of drama led me on to development in the best tradition of the Italian theater. What traditions of the Italian theater are on display in this film? Uh, well, it's a, uh, Comedie dell'Arte, uh, is the actual, like, uh, yeah, I'm, genre I that they're performing. get that, that they are performing that, but the film is not that. Uh, true enough. Like, having a thing in your film does not make your film that thing. You're right. Uh, the film is structured as a play. We open and close with... That's true. ...with curtains and a proscenium. Uh, but but you are right to say that the film itself is not an example of the Comédie de l'Art because they are not the uh, the traditional uh, stock characters that Comédie de l'Art insists upon. You know, everything is right. One of the the limits of that art, one of the the you know ideas of that art is is its limits because you are limited just to those. Well, yeah, those stock I mean, characters. it's that. I mean, it's that. You know, that's. <laughs> Not an unusual way to create those kind of uh, yeah, call like sort of frameworks for making a you know we get with Greek tragedies and things like that too, where we have to have certain types of characters at certain times. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it is not yeah no, and I mean, and then even going beyond that, like I don't know that like this film even beyond that feels like a. A classic Italian stage production of any sort, whether it's comedy art or something else, like it's just sort of like 
very much just a just a film. Like, yeah, and then as such, of course, has like you know elements of stage production in it, but like not even that heavily. You know, we've seen much more stage influenced films before. Certainly, like I mean, Certainly. even recently, you know, I mean. So I, I though there are still there are still elements of that sort of stage idea uh, throughout the film, like with that bullfighting scene, which I thought was done very interestingly. We get the entirety of the bullfighting scene just in uh, her reactions. That was it. interesting. I, I mean, there are certain really like there are and certain that's, interesting that's... artistic concepts on display here. Yeah. Um, that beautiful pantomime in in this tradition uh we did see that actress before anna magnini just recently she was mama roma um, that did not click with me at all you told me that after like in a message and <laughs> after i you like, watched it yeah I, I that didn't click at all i mean like she looked super familiar but i couldn't put yeah. my finger on what it was I had to. I had to do a double take. Was the first time she was on screen. I thought, I know who that is. Why do I know who that is? Well, see, yeah, you, you and I. This is where you and I diverge, right? You ask that question and then go find the answer. I ask that question. I say, ah, fucking, I don't care. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing is about the movie is that it's in English, but it was originally supposed to be shot back to back in English and French. Does that mean like I was reading that? Does that mean they're going to? Like, shoot a scene and then shoot a scene? Or does that mean they're going to shoot the entire film and then shoot the entire film again? I don't know. It would make more sense to do shoot a scene, shoot a scene. Right. Uh, that would that would be uh, financially advantageous as And well, would ensure uh, that, like, things actually look roughly part. similar, too, right? Whereas, um, yeah. Uh, the Wikipedia describes the French version as not happening because of financial difficulties... Um, which might mean that they started to run out of money and decided, well, we can only do one of these. So right, it's, which, which is they interesting, stopped doing right? the like, scene scene. I saw the same thing, and I was like, well, okay, it's like if they're doing shoot a scene, shoot a scene, right? That means some percentage of a French one exists. Yeah, which would be interesting to see. You would think that that should be true. Uh, there is no suggestion from any other source that I can find that that is true. There is a French dubbed version, in, which was in fact the first to premiere. Uh, Renoir prefers the English version uh, instead of the dubbed version. Because dubbing is stupid and looks why. bad. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, there was also an Italian dubbed version. Um, well, let, let's let's be yeah. Too. I mean, <laughs> but like at this point in our universe. God only knows how many dub versions of this exist. I mean, there's subtitles versions, but who yeah. knows, right? Like, every, every at a certain time of the history of film, like, if it was released in another country, it was more than likely released as a dubbed version anyway. Uh, yeah. So, um, what was I going to ask you? Well, I'm just wondering, because, like, whenever I read things like that, with it seem a little bit, like, a little bit fishy, I'm like, uh, you know, a shoot in French was planned as well, but it had to be abandoned due to financial problems. Like, you wonder yourself, like, how early in the game was that actually? <laughs> like, 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 did Rimois say, I want to do this one in English and in French? And then the film studio was like, yeah, but... And then that was, like, the end of it. It's like, oh, a French and English version was planned by 
Renoir, and then no one ever accepted it because that was ridiculous and cost too much money. You know what I mean? Like, you never know how, like, you know, unless I go dig into the original source, I mean, I'm not going to find out, like, that's not going to happen because I'm not going to buy that book. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, it's just, it it's hard to know where those things like truly lie. Right. So you talked about how we weren't really sure, uh, where this movie was taking place for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, uh, one of the interesting things about all three of these films, uh, is that Renoir and what we're familiar with from Renoir so far, are very political films, right? Right. Even his version of the lower depths is very much, uh, a political movie. It's impossible to escape that sort of thing. Well, I mean, they both are, but yes. I mean, his is, his is yes to a lesser extent, but yes. Yeah. 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 Well, he also tried to make it a comedy. So right. Well, exactly. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, that's, just kind of, that's kind of a mess. Yeah. But yes, I get what you're saying. It is, <laughs> yeah. that is true. But yes. even, it is a political film. But he does even, political films, yes. Yeah, even The Lower Depths was more political than either... <laughs> You know any of these movies? Well, I mean, this one, this one, the first one, and we're gonna get into the next one when we get into the next one. This one has yeah. little touches of things in it. Yeah, that's that's what I meant to be segueing into. Um, like, really this isn't. Like... Yeah, they frequently talk about you know it's it's this is a colonial time period, and they use the terminology of colonialism. Um, and repeatedly refer to the uh, native peoples as savages. Uh, until toward, toward the end when uh, the one lover shows back up. Yeah, and he's got like, he's, he's his he eyes... Says, are, oh, they're not savages. He's, he's they're not woke, savages. Yeah. They're noble savages. Well, I mean, like he's um, as... Well, I mean, yes. Yeah, I mean, he oh, does. Yes, I agree. Oh, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt to make it a little bit better. Like it's not that much better. It's man. not a lot better. No, you're right. <laughs> like what I was actually leaning in towards was the 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 kind of almost feminism of the film. Yes, in the sense that like that. she is she is fairly well empowered in the film, which is yeah. is interesting, um, considering how unkind it is to people of color. Uh, yeah, it is. Because, mind you, he gets back from the quote-unquote savages, and we never still actually interact with a single person who is not white in this film. At all. Yeah. The closest we get is, we the, is the, is the, is the, is the I, I assume African, I mean, I don't know, like, child that, like, lights the cigarettes for the Viceroy. Yeah, there are a couple of uh, very, very dark-skinned uh uh, people <clears throat> within the viceroy's uh, staff. Yeah, I mean, I assume they are slaves. Yeah, um, and then uh, there are, of course, the the crowd scenes of the locals first coming to the place. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. Like, I mean, they do, but we don't actually. But like, we don't. In, what I mean is, like, really. interact with. Like, yeah. even even when the movie tries to express some sort of enlightened perspective on. Native peoples, which I assume like nineteen fifty was this nineteen fifty two, 
Yeah. We're still 53. pretty heavy in like noble savage territory. No, it's 52. Yeah. Like yeah, we're exactly. we're pretty deep in that territory. So I mean like this is as enlightened as you're going to get. Yeah. We can't be super surprised by I mean, you by know, his mind you if you get into certain nooks and crannies of of you know intelligentsia, intelligentsia and like and uh academia, you've got you've gotten beyond that, but like for a dude who just makes movies, I mean that's as good as you're going to get probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, you still don't. Even when you're doing that, like God forbid, we can't actually have one of them actually speak on camera. I mean, never, <laughs> never. <laughs> like, yeah, well, but that's what it kind of like. Do you realize? And I'm like, I want you to do a mental exercise with me, okay? Think about how hard it is to actually not have anyone of color speak on a film <laughs> in a film set in a place that is the native land of yes. a majority population of people of color yes like i mean obviously it's easy to do in the world of the film but imagine the universe you actually mentally have to construct that suspension of disbelief that it takes to be well well none of them just say anything for the entire film like this film takes place over time and no one yeah. of color ever speaks a word. Yeah. I mean, I understand we do that. This is even a, a problem in modern cinema, but like, Oh, it is. Absolutely. It, like it's just, when you really start expanding it into the real world, you're like, that's like, you have to create some sort yeah. of elaborate fantasy universe that allows this to be true. Well, as we all know, all people of exactly. color are born without tongues. Exactly, and that's that's the the problem with this idea, even if it still exists today, is that you know there's our Renoir himself and the other production staff of this film are making active choices not to allow that to happen. Well, exactly, that's what I'm and, saying. Is like, and however they're justifying it and saying, well, it's realistic because these are these are Spanish noblemen and and the the, the lower classes want to talk to them or talk around them without being talked to. Um, yeah, we do get the uh, the one middle class guy who's presumably a local, but possibly not. Um, but he's also not played by an indigenous person, clearly. Right, or even somebody um, that they even attempt to, you know, what I mean, like not yeah. not even indigenous adjacent. Yeah, exactly. like you know what I mean. Like we're not even like in the same ballpark. Yeah. I do love the one line he has, though, uh, where he's explaining why they won't get be getting paid. Um, where he says, he says, uh, you know, the natives here are, are uh, they're too poor to pay. And I can't make them pay, so I'll still let them in. Uh, the nobles, it would be an insult to insist that they pay. Um, so I won't do that. Uh, and that just leaves the middle class, and I'm not going to make my friends pay to get into my show. Right? Yeah. No. I mean, it was a it was a pretty good like uh, rundown of like the the, the entire financial why situation. Of the, yeah. Why you're going to yeah. be poor for the like? Oh, you made whatever. I forget how much it was, but like it'll. I like that whole idea. Like it's going to take you about a year, and then you'll start making money. <laughs> yes. But then again, like, you start thinking to yourself, right? Like, when I finally realized we were in not, like, Spain or France. Yeah. Um, you start thinking, like, okay, well, they came over on a ship. 
Somebody paid that passage, right? It was that guy, right? Um, but, like, they are officially stuck. Like, how... Like, that's a pretty fucked up scenario, right? Like, apparently, like, essentially this guy created a... Created, like, an ad hoc... Uh, what's that? Call, what's that thing called? Like, what they what they called, what they essentially called slavery for white Europeans? Oh, indentured servitude, right? Um, yes, yes. Like he created an ad hoc indentured servitude for the Commedia dell'arte troupe yep. by bringing them over and then being like, "Oh shit! Like you're not going to get paid for this." <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's totally uh, glossed over in the film, but like when you realize, like, oh, these people are all fucking trapped here. Okay, cool. You you live here now. Yeah, this is your home. Entire entire families just kind of stuck there, which is probably, you know, given the uh, the other films we've seen about uh, acting troops, traveling acting troops, you know, uh, you know, even. or the Japanese ones. I've seen plenty of Italian ones. Uh, that's pretty part and parcel, but normally you don't travel so far. Wait, well, that's my uh, point. It's like, yeah, of course. You end you up like, in a city and have to be there for yeah. for six months to a year before you can make enough to get right. To Usually, city. you're in the continent that from which from whence you came, right? So you could be yeah. like, well, I mean, you could just quit and go home, right? You could. Well, I mean, I don't have enough money to like continue doing what I'm doing, but I have enough money to like. I can beg the eight dollars it takes me to get out of here. Yes, and somebody will give it to me, and I could be gone. But like, you're not going to beg the God knows how much money it costs to like <laughs> rent the cabins on a like even the deck of a ship to get all the way to yeah. fucking like Spain or yes, Italy. Indeed. I guess you're not even trying to get to Spain; you're trying to get to Italy. It's insane, Adam, because <laughs> it's an Italian troop coming yes. to a Spanish colony. It's like, how is this communication system going to work? How is this communication system actually working? Because they're all speaking fucking English. Fortunately, they speak English. Right, but, like, I mean, that's nonsense, right? I mean, like, that's just, like... Yeah. That's, like, well, we'll speak English in a slightly funny way, and it'll be perfect. (laughs) All Romans are British, you know. That sort of thing. It's true. Everybody. Everybody's got got an English accent. That's how we know they're foreign. (laughs) Ah, <laughs> uh, and yet no one speaks Spanish. Yeah, I know. Well, that's because that would be that would be that would get too indigenous adjacent, Adam. It's true. If anybody spoke any Spanish at all, you'd be like, "Oh shit!" Like, even though that's not the native language, that's closer to the native language than English is at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's such ridiculous. Well, yeah, I mean, because we're eight steps removed at this point. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, on the one hand, the Grand Illusion is about how everyone's, all men are truly brothers, right? Okay, yeah. The entire point of the Grand Illusion is why are we, why are we preparing for another war when, when we're all exactly alike anyway? Um. And like you said, that sort of the working definition of multiculturalism is uh, well, right. all of that's Europe. All, yeah, there's a, that, there's a little addendum in a bracket there that says white Europeans. 
Yeah. Males. Yeah. Sorry, white European males. Yeah. So we do get we do get some subtle pushback to that. Like I said, uh, you know, obviously we were talking about Philippe uh, and his his sort of noble savage ends, but but even just that existing is a pushback against you know the viceroy says explicitly, oh the natives are are too lazy to revolt, whereas there's there's an active revolt going on. Right. Well, yeah, 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 yeah for sure. And, and like not so. only is there an active revolt going on, but like time demonstrates very clearly like we we as an audience get an almost sort of like um yeah like it's, you know a, like dramatic irony sort of thing out of that right it's like oh yeah because the spanish are going to rule peru forever yeah let's see the Peru- peruvian independence um D- this is going to be the war ended in 1826 oh, the well, war ended in 1826 okay, so it's, not, it's, it's actually pretty much it was better than we thought so. like, well you know sometimes you're like you're like oh they must have gotten independence sometime in the 1800s and you read it it's like 1988 you're like, <laughs> finally bitch. let go <laughs> yeah it's like, that's the way it is uh, for almost like all the islands right when you read about the islands it's always like and then they gained independence in 1992 and you're like are you joking right now yeah so the uh, the viceroyalty period lasted from 1542 to 1824, and we don't get real... Yeah, we know it's sometime in there, right? But that's about all yeah. we know. Yeah, we've got that 300-year window where we're not really... Which, we, when you sure really imagine, right, it takes you pretty far, right? You go from... Yeah. What was it? What was the... When did it end? 15... Uh, 1826 was when independence was Yeah, so it takes you declared. from, like... Oh man, that takes you that takes you a long ass time, like technology wise, doesn't it? Yeah, right. And and we have we have very little technology coming into this world, but then maybe maybe they shouldn't because it's it also takes a hell of a lot of money to ship that technology into right <laughs> into Peru. Um, so Did you say it was eighteen twenty six or eighteen twenty three? Eighteen twenty. Or did I just see the history I... of Peru says that the period ended in 1824, Sorry. Um, but that uh, the war for independence actually ended in 1826. Oh, okay. So I don't, yeah. Interesting. I was just um, like, we, we, we're right on the cusp of the steam age at that point. Don't quite make it. Yeah. But. It wasn't until 1884 that they really finalized their territory. Well, yeah, but I, um, I think that was, that was... I think that's pretty much part of the course right down, you know, yeah. when you kick out the, the oppressors, right. There's a certain sort of clusterfuck period of like, well, shit, like who owns what? We'd still, yeah. Especially when you're, you know, prior to colonialization, there weren't really set borders. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. In a lot of ways. So, um, uh, plus you're talking about, um, also, indigenous civilizations that spread the entire continent um right and you're yeah i mean and even if they did have uh, you know even if there are groupings right like you didn't like the whole idea of borders being kind of a very european yeah nonsense talk right where you're like well shit i guess this is the thing we're doing now <laughs> yes ah uh, hooray we will continue to do in perpetuity yeah like hey guys like i there's something like so weirdly sort of like gross and Schadenfreude about the old idea of like, well, they forced us to do this thing. Let's sit down and talk about this thing that we never had before, but we're gonna have now because 
The Europeans made us do it. Because we have to, right? Yeah, the Europeans made us do it. Now we're going to have to talk about yeah. this. Oh, if we don't declare borders at this point, the Europeans will just come back in. And, and they'll be like, well, you guys don't have borders. I guess this all belongs to us now. <laughs> Again. Again. Forever. Yeah. Let's uh, let's just let's just we can we can turn Lost and Criterion into like anti colonialism talk pretty easily. <laughs> we should probably, we do it a lot. Yeah, but we should probably stop and get back to the oh, movie. I think. Fine. Well, not that I don't want to. I would love to talk about the evils of imperialism for ever, really. But I mean, <laughs> like presumably people tune into this for like I don't know talk about the movie. I guess I don't know. Oh, people don't tune into this. It's fine. You're very right about that. <laughs> oh, you were talking about well, I mean, uh, how it, it does have like a little bit of like, it, despite its attitudes regarding people of color, it it does have she like the feminist sort of overtones are yes, pretty exactly. are pretty pretty You're strong. The they're word. they're kind of in weird iffy territory. They're like kind of like the male definitions of feminist <laughs> concept. You know what I mean? Like they're they're in that weird yeah. space where she's like, she's independent and she like gets what she wants, but in order to achieve that in a film made by men, she has to be like hyper aggressive. Yeah, you and in order to I mean? achieve that, in order to achieve that in this society, as far as the interpretation of the society that we're seeing. Uh, she has to do that by aligning herself with powerful men. Right, exactly, right. And, and, and so, like, you get into this sort of weird territory where you're like, well, is this, like, feminist or, you know what I mean? Is it not, you know what I mean? Because, like, she can't just have the power on her own yeah. through her own strength of will, but she kind of does, right, by manipulating these different men. Indeed. There's always this. There, there exists a lot of fuzzy territory there, right? Yeah. That any movie made in certain time eras kind of has to play with to a certain extent. Uh, and this movie further uh, clouds that issue by having not only is she in a uh, love triangle, well, uh, love. Uh, what, however many sides this shape has. <laughs> she's she's. Uh, in a relationship with three different men, um, overlaying and uh, uh, not uh, moving back and forth uh, as as need be. Um, not that she's like actively even manipulating them; she's just living her life really. Well, and that's the interesting thing, right? Like he the, does yeah. get around some of those problems by like making it like so that she doesn't really ever like play the yeah. femme fatale kind of thing. She just sort of like is her. And then yeah. they just are very, very smitten with her. Yeah, she likes these guys. They are all desperately in love with her, and uh, she really likes that golden coach. Um, right, right. Would, would love to have that if possible. Um, but where it gets even cloudier is ultimately her choice isn't between any of the three of them. It's between any of the three of them and her life as an artist. Right, which I thought was an interesting... It was a nice thing to have in the film. Because it does free you from that, like, well, I've got to choose one of these men. Yeah. Well, whereas she doesn't have to choose one of these men. don't actually have to. And so she doesn't. Yeah. And 
I, I like the entire solution to the problem at the I, I it's interesting though because like her her solution at the end right with the with the coach right is to donate it yeah which also happens to help the viceroy does it do we see it happen we see him smile he likes that but he's already been right but it keeps him does from... she save him by doing yes that? she does because okay. as far as I could understand it now mind you that's all it, the, the movie's not as clear as it could be at that point but as far as I can tell by doing that the British ship is so pleased that he chooses to not have the viceroy killed basically. He still yeah. loses his power, I believe. It's hard okay. to tell, but like the next step for him was, yeah, he's still deposed because he not, refuses uh... to sign the thing that would have allowed him to keep his position, and so they accuse him of treason, and they're yeah. planning to have him killed as long as the the bishop agrees. Well, okay. the bishop seems yeah, pretty true. pleased because it's as far as the interpretation I get out of it. Now, mind you, I may have missed something. Is that because it came through him to her to the bishop? The bishop is sort of like, yeah. In this scenario, instead of shit rolling downhill, like good things do, right? And so, like, obviously, she the, gave it to him. The bishop, and, yeah. bishop knows where it's coming, from. right? Like, she, right. the bishop knows that she doesn't just isn't just fucking walking around with a golden coach. Yeah, she got it from him. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. like I showed up in the new world with a golden coach, you know, in my bags. Yeah, another thing this movie does is sort of completely absolves the church of its complacency in European colonialism. Oh, yeah, I know. The, the, the church is like, gets off scot-free in this nonsense. Like, oh, is the we're just here to the help bishops. the poor, the poor yeah. indigenous populations. He's going to use that golden coach to deliver uh, the sacraments to all of the poor and sick. Most of whom um, have no interest in our religion. <laughs> we'll have no idea what these sacraments are, but... They get some bread and some wine, and that's good enough. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, yeah. And then the the ending conversation where the uh, uh, Don Antonio, the, the head of the troop, uh, comes back out to give us our, our pronouncements um, with her there. Um, and And tell us directly. Oh, you love the stage more than you love these guys. I know, like, that felt like kind of like, that's a little ham-handed, right? It was like, we need to make sure this is all very clear now. Yeah, but then we get the very last line, is Felipe, Ramon, the Viceroy, disappeared. Now they are part of the audience. Uh, Do you miss them? A little. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. She misses them a little. The movie ends... Yeah, no, I. It's not. It's not the most amazing film I've ever seen, and the ending is subpar. Like when you really think about it, right? Like you, the coach thing is the whole kind of like that moment, right? You could have essentially just ended the film there. She still wouldn't have to choose. Because if you just never have her not choose, then she never chose, right? But we just gotta we gotta eke out a little bit more out of it and wrap it up and make sure everybody knows that she did. You know, it's I don't know. It's very weird. 
Yeah. I, I mean, it's... I don't know what Renoir's kind of, like, mission statement was for this film. And that I don't think he really had one. I think he just wanted to do a thing. But, right, uh, but that feels but, odd for Renoir. Yeah, and that's that's where this jump we have is really uh, what's getting us. Because everything we've seen from Renoir so far was from the 30s. Our latest film was 1939. I guess that's true. Um, and, or 37? I had not. It? The rules of the game. I can't remember what year it oh, came out. Oh, God, I don't. I, don't remember, um, I think but... it was 39. Nonetheless, that was the last movie he made in France. And then when the war started and that movie was banned uh, <laughs> yep. and then banned again, um, it was banned before the invasion. And then they finally let it out. And then the invasion happened. It was immediately banned again. Um, because of you know, you're doing a good uh, job when like multiple regimes are like, no, nah, this is no good. You can't have this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he left for Hollywood after that, and he made he made Hollywood films until the fifties. Uh, just before this, he made a film uh, in India called The River, uh, and then he made I bet that's super the Golden racist. Coach. <laughs> eh, maybe I bet it's I bet it's uh, very much like uh, oh what was that Palin Prowsberger? Oh yeah, God, film that was in India. I bet it's. It's very much oh, a, yeah, yeah, a hands-off sure. sort of, uh, we shouldn't be here. Um, which is its own sort of weird racism, but... Yeah, I, yeah, no, I uh, mean... I, anyway. I presume it has zero Indian people talking. But I'm, I'm No, it's actually, it's a coming-of-age story of three of three Indian girls. So okay, well then it might actually be interesting. It's, it, it's probably much, much more evenly handed than even this. Uh, but he made this in Italy, and it was his first film in Europe uh, since since uh, the rules of the game. Uh, and then the French Can-Can is his first movie in France since the rules of the game. Yeah. So do you think he was just like trying to warm up a little bit? Trying to trying to slide back into France. Right, I like, God, I should, probably shouldn't get the good. first film I make back in Europe banned, huh? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know if he, if he swung back. Um, I don't think he did. I think this is Renoir in his older age, and he's just—he's just kind of putzing. You know, he was always kind of a, a fraternity humanist, right? You know, it was always we're all brothers, um, and ultimately, he like a lot of people who have said we're all brothers in the past. Maybe draws the line somewhere to say we're all brothers, but not these people. Well, yeah, I'm. I'm sure he does, but I'm sure he yeah. did. But you know, that being said, well, yeah, but it seems like he doesn't make very many films after. No, no, these, these films, are late yeah. period for him anyway. Um, he did a few. Uh, these are by no means his last three films. No, but there's only about four um, after this. So. But yeah, after this, uh, and the Testament of Doctor Cordelier. Which he made in '59. I'm which pretty is sure it's just a television. Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Yeah, and say it's a television uh, adaptation yeah, so too. That's, that's as far as I know. Rough, yeah. So the picnic so on the grass m- has literally no information about it. <laughs> yeah, the little theater of Jean Renoir. His very last thing uh, is for television as well. Um, the elusive corporal was a film comedy. 
Um, and Picnic on the Grass is a film, at least. Yeah, but uh, it has no information about it at all. Yeah. Basically. No idea what it is. Uh, I know that the Little Theater of Jean Renoir was a, um, a collection of short films um, and was uh, kind of his lifelong dream to do a, a sort of opera um, kind of gets into that. Mm-hmm. Um, the okay, so he just starts writing after that? Yeah. The Elusive Corporal actually is described as a companion piece to the Grand Illusion. Um, Interesting. So we'll see. I don't... Is that something we're going to end up watching, though? I don't know. Uh, Let me pull up the criterion real quick. I actually kind of wonder how much more Ramon we have anyway. So we do have a good chunk of Renoir. Uh, there's okay. uh, there's eleven films total. Okay. We will eventually see the river. Okay. Um, I'm actually kind of intrigued by it. Like I saw the the. the yeah. I, it makes you wonder, like, if he did actually really draw the line, or if it's just sort of like, well, yeah, but, 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 yeah. but. Um. It seems like the rest that we see is from the 30s, which might just be, you know, he was working in Hollywood, so obviously it had distribution. Criterion may just not have the rights to right, right, the right. stuff he made in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, his four color films, um, The River and these three. Uh, so we won't see anything he made after Elena and her men uh, thus far. By the time we actually get to the end of this project, maybe more will have been added. Right. But, um, but thus far, we only see those four. Um, yeah, there were. Goodness, I hope there are Indian. Well, there appears the to be two Indian actresses okay. in the river. All right, and then at least three white people. Do the Indian actresses seem to be the stars? Well, they've got fourth and fifth billing. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. Um I don't I don't know, but if it's supposed to be the coming of age tale of three women There are three white actresses listed. No 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 no, actually there's not, which is it's all very quite it's all quite confusing actually. Okay. Like there are <laughs> there are two female Indian actresses, but like if shouldn't there be three? I don't know. Like we're gonna have to just watch the movie. <laughs> well we will eventually. Uh, but not for some time. I'm sorry to report, the river is spine number. Uh, oh no, it's not going to be good. So, so it's not that far. It's about it's, an English family in India. Yes. So yes. we're already we're already we're already up the creek. <laughs> filtered filtered through the English family. Right. This is not going. This is not going to be what we want it to be. This is not going to be the hyper enlightened, uh, like. Yeah, Renoir like is secretly like truly a humanist and just <laughs> like, unfortunately about all men and women rather than yeah just all white, all aspects of Europeans. European society. Yeah. Oops. And yes, the poor and the rich were just brothers. Um, as long as we're not, you know, you know, brown. Yeah. Um. 
alas. The river is only 276, so it's actually not We that will far get there actually pretty still. soon. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, well, you know, six months or I so. I like how there's certain movies we get into where we're like, yeah, we'll, we'll just talk about other movies about this, from this person we're going to have to watch. Because, like, we don't really <laughs> want to talk about this one. That's the thing, and why I feel bad about this is is Renoir. I love Renoir so much, but I love his '30s work so much. Right, and I think like I, I don't think love this. I feel like we. This is one of those classic cases in the Criterion Collection where we have this because this guy is too important for us not to have every single work they could get their hands on. But they yeah. essentially made a box set of shit like like Renoir's not so great stuff. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. They're kind of like, meh. I mean, these are, these are we'll his, watch, this is his meh period. We'll watch the other movies and hopefully they won't be so meh. But this one is is very, very much that for me. Yeah. No, I mean, it, um, I mean, it, keep in mind that as much as I give this movie shit, this movie made by another director could be a lot, a lot worse. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, true. all the things we are, like, kind of getting down, like, getting kind of digging into him about are as about enlightened as you're going to get in 1950 whatever too absolutely like you're on the yeah. you're pretty much on the edge of as enlightened as it's going to be yeah but one thing we have fairly consistently rejected in our journey through the criterion collection I agree. is is that is, is that talking about a movie in its period i agree uh, instead i agree of talking about a movie I just I wanted to period. I wanted to give him personally a little yeah. bit of credit so, for not being yeah. as much of an asshole as probably a good yeah. majority of his contemporaries probably were. I as you know, I understand the idea of talking about a thing as a product of its time, but that does not give it a pass that will never to excuse not allow us to up. talk about the negative aspects, you know. I'm not going to not talk about Alfred Hitchcock's well, for sure, for sure, for of sure. women. And, and we've, we've done uh, that. I just want to give Romain yeah. a little bit of credit for not being like, yeah. bear in mind, he is contemporary with those assholes. Yes, absolutely. And this movie at yeah. least has some uh, you know, positive elements in that direction. Yes. They're not great. Yes. They're, they're, not they're great. pretty shitty. But but they are they are better than his peers. Better. Yes. <laughs> oh goodness, it's a it is a strange and fine line we walk, Adam. Yeah. Uh, so here's another interesting thing about this movie: the cinematographer was his nephew. Okay, uh, Claude Renoir. Uh, Does Claude Renoir do go on to do anything interesting later on? He just works as a cinematographer mostly. No, he uh, never he does like, not direct. Never breaks uh, into directing or cinema. Um, but he does a cinematographer something amazing later on. Uh, he does work as cinematographer for the uh, next few films we'll be watching, uh, and in that regard, at least, <laughs> this is the Claude the Renoir trilogy. <laughs> Renoir collaboration. Um, Oh, he doesn't actually do the French can-can. He oh, just does nope, this one. He I thought he up. did the French can-can for some reason. Um, but the cinematography in this is great. The technical yeah, no, is good. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it's it good. Is, it Although is it suffers from something I kind of hate. Which is not... What's that? Not the f- in this era of Technicolor, I think it can be very beautiful. This has some very beautiful things in it. But I don't like the way 
Technicolor makes like what should be a pretty muted scene look. Yeah. Like in that like I I don't know, like whenever you like for example when you look at the buildings from the outside, right? The colors do pop. Which is a, a benefit of Technicolor. But then also so do the beiges. Which are like kind of to me is like kind of like how the fuck is that happening? How can beige <laughs> pop? But it's just like the, it's just the way Technicolor works, you know what I mean? And it, and I like it because it does some amazing things, right? Like it can do some really beautiful things, and this is beautiful. But it's also like creates a certain layer of artificiality. Yeah, in the film, like you automatically when you watch a Technicolor film, know you're in a film. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, it actually, it Technicolor, for me, actually, like, actively works against suspension of disbelief. Yeah, but that's that's something that Renoir is using. Right, here. absolutely, absolutely. And, and, I, and I agree with that. It's just that, like, on a more deeper personal level, yeah. I find, like, okay, well, we're in Peru during the colonial era, and, like, I feel like I'm on a Hollywood soundstage. Yeah. But it's meant to because right. it's established as a stage. It's meant I to get be artificial. That. It's meant to. It's meant and to. And he pull does back. use and that then, well. But you yeah. you start to wonder to yourself like is he is A following B or is B following A? Yeah. Like did Renoir uh, like you know to a certain extent like I obviously he intended for this to be a stage kind of like scenario yeah. from day one. But at the same this time, also like, well, I know that Technicolor makes everything look like poppy crazy shit. So. Yeah, I've got to this excuse is also that in every his, film I make. His second color film, period. Right, and that's what I'm saying is like, so, like, Renoir very clearly did not want to. Like, I can see him being one of the people who are like this kind of looks like shit. <laughs> so hold off on it until I can do something I want to. Right, do. exactly. I need to excuse why every color looks like it's fucking painted in neon. Yeah. And, you know, stage production is a good excuse for that. And even something like French Can-Can is a good excuse for that. Because, like, oh, well, I have a scenario where colors ought to be crazy. Yeah. But, like, at the same time, you gotta... I have to wonder if, like, he, you know, he very clearly is somebody with a very strong eye for the way a film should look. And I think to a lot of directors, like, Technicolor was like, what the fuck is going on here? You know what I mean? Like, and good <laughs> yeah. and good directors found ways to use it, but like, I can't help but feel like the stage production thing feels almost like an excuse for <laughs> why does white pop? How is this possible? Every color pops, even like Jesus. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the only color that doesn't pop is gold for some fucking reason. Gold doesn't look like gold in Technicolor for some fucking unknown reason. <laughs> I don't know why that happens, but gold is the only color in Technicolor that doesn't pop. Gold automatically looks like a weird orange. Weird phenomenons of Technicolor, I don't know. But, just saying. I think it's the sort of iridescence of it. Like, things that are actually truly iridescent colors don't show up well in Technicolor. Whereas regular colors look semi-iridescent on their own in Technicolor. Yeah, I think if you put bright pink, if you put like neon pink on Technicolor, it would probably explode your TV. It would look like a weird red or something. And that's been Technicolor talk. 
<laughs> uh, Claude Renoir would go on to do the cinematography for such classics as Barbarella. Oh, I'm already a fan of this guy. And Moonraker. Oh no, no, me, me, and him, we're simpatico. Okay, I like yeah, this guy. Yeah, no, he's 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 fine. Um, yeah, uh, I just like the idea on... that like you could already sort of see that aesthetic in this film. Yeah. Unless I'm misreading, uh, he also appears to have worked on uh, on the waterfront. Um, okay. And uh, Cleopatra, the 1963 one starring uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, you know what, though? Big American yeah, production. No, I mean, I mean, he does a good job in this, and so you can kind of yeah. see, you can even see some of the origins of that. I think a little bit in this yeah right the way like scenes are kind of staged and stuff to a certain extent like the way things are shot again it's hard to separate director from cinematographer but yeah yeah i don't think uh he he was working as an uh at least an assistant on cleopatra leon shamroy is right. credited as the cinematographer on cleopatra but uh well we but, can yeah, assume that anybody who does cinematography like Barbarella. Yeah, you can. I think assistant cinematographer still does a fair amount of. Yeah, has some input in the. Because in, if if you're not having input in the way things are shot, they don't call you assistant cinematographer. They have other words for that. <laughs> yes. So. True enough. Um. <laughs> So this movie has a lot of interesting things going on for it about art and about artificiality and the way it's shot and framed. Work with that. It uh, does not confront uh, colonialism quite as much as, as Pat and I would like. Well, considering like how, kind of at all, really. Like a little yeah, tiny bit. Considering how much we are familiar with Renoir as a political agent, um... That's a little disappointing. Well, you know what? What kind of disappoints me about that is the fact that, like, you would hope that somebody, given a huge time separation from their subject, would feel more comfortable to just really, like, fucking tear into them. You know what I mean? We're a full, more than 100 years removed from people in a different country. You know what I mean? Like, you feel like that's, like, a license to just be, like, just just tear them a new asshole. But he doesn't do that in any sense, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. It's kind of disappointing, even beyond the whole colonialism thing. Like, you could just kind of lay into Spanish colonialism if you wanted to, right? Like, you're you're far enough removed from your your subject that you can just be like, without indicting your own people, you can still just say, like, oh, these guys were assholes. Yeah, and this isn't a Spanish colonialism. You know, it's not a Spanish production. It's an Italian production. Well, exactly. So you could just really tear into them and be like, yeah, we, yeah, those assholes, right? Yeah. I I don't know why he's not more political with this, because he could be. Yeah, it just seems like this is a less political time in his life. Yeah, no, it does seem that way. That's kind of sad. Yeah, it it is, considering, like, what we've seen from him and just how magnificent it can be when he decides to be political. So yeah, this week we were talking about The Golden Coach, the 1952 Renoir film. 
Next week, we will be continuing our way through the Stage and Spectacle box set with uh, French Can Can, Renoir's 1955 follow-up to this and his return to France. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.